Welcome to the Denver Community Church Teaching Podcast. Whether you attend our 10 a.m. gathering on Sundays here in Denver, are just checking us out, or listen every week from far away, our hope is that by engaging with Scripture, together we can explore and participate in the life of Jesus so that we can be a healing presence in our world. As you listen to this teaching, allow it to begin a conversation between you and God, you and the Bible, and you and your community. If you have any questions about DCC or this teaching, you can email us at info at denverchurch.org. To get connected or find out more about what's going on in and around our community, you can visit our website at denverchurch.org or download our app by searching Denver Community Church in the App Store. And if you want to financially support the healing work we are doing as we invest in our community while setting aside 20% of every dollar given to support our partners locally and around the globe, you can text the words Denver Church to 77977. That's Denver Church to 77977. Know that spaces like ours can only exist through the radical generosity of those who call DCC home. Thank you for being here. Let's get to the teaching. Well, hey, everybody. Merry Christmas. Good to be with all of you uh, on this Christmas evening, Christmas Eve evening, actually. Uh, If you've been with us during Advent, you know uh, we've been talking about the shadows of Advent, the shadows of Christmas. And I, I understand that oftentimes Advent and Christmas are associated with light, but there's also the reality that it's light that casts and creates shadows. And we've observed that when we come to the gospel writers and they, when they tell the story of Jesus, that they don't shy away from the darkness and from the shadows that we see in those stories. Matthew, one of the gospel writers, begins his gospel this way. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, I know what you're thinking. That is the most boring way to start a story, a genealogy. Most people that I know, if they're reading the Bible, when they come to a long list of names like we find in Matthew chapter 1, just skip right over them. Not sure if you're aware of that. That's why you've never met anyone who says that their life verse comes from the book of Numbers because it's just a list of names. And not only are they names, but they're names that we can barely pronounce anymore, names like Aminadab and Shealtiel. And so you come to it, and you come to the beginning of Matthew, and you're like, I don't even care what you're talking about. It's 14 times three generations. But here's what I do find interesting about Matthew. Not necessarily all of the names, but the word in English that says genealogy is the Greek word behind it from which we get our word Genesis, which is also the name that the Greek Christians gave to the first book of the Bible. Our Jewish friends refer to the first book of the Bible as Bereshith. And whether you call it Genesis or whether you call it Bereshith, both of them have the same meaning. It means beginning. This is why several commentators point at the way Matthew begins his gospel, not at the genealogy, but at using the word Genesis and say he's giving a subtle nod to the creation poem that we find in Genesis chapter 1. Now, if you're familiar with John's gospel, he's not quite as subtle as Matthew. John begins his gospel this way, in the beginning. Obviously, a clear reference to the opening words found in Genesis chapter 1. 
John here is not just referring to the creation poem itself. He's also, in his context, talking about the birth of Jesus, which is why he says later in John chapter 1 that Jesus put on skin and bone and came and dwelled among us. That for John, he's making some sort of comparison to the birth of the universe and the birth of Jesus. Two writers, two references to the same creation poem. That poem is found in Genesis chapter 1, and this is what it says in the opening words of the text. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Right there at the very beginning of creation, we find darkness. And it's in that darkness that we read the Spirit is hovering. It's in that darkness that we see God, the source of everything, who sustains everything, begin the creative process. It's out of that darkness that light is birthed. It's out of that darkness that everything that we know is birthed. It's telling us that the darkness is filled with creative possibilities, that it's pregnant with creative possibilities. Now, this way of thinking about darkness is not just found in the Bible. In a lot of ancient cultures, there was an understanding, there was a belief, there was a tradition that the darkness was pregnant with possibilities. In the ancient world, regardless of time frame or regardless of where the civilization was found, they saw darkness as something that birthed life in light. One of those ancient cultures in the, uh, that believed this were the Celts. Now, the Celtic people date back about a thousand years before Jesus, which is around the same time that King David was on the throne as the king of Israel. And they had a deep reverence for the darkness. Each year, they actually observed a season that they referred to as the darkest depths. We now call that season autumn, but it was the time of year for them where they saw the days begin to shorten and the nights grew longer and longer. And for them, they knew that this time was not when things got ready to die, but they understood that the darkness is when things get ready to be reborn. And during the sacred season, they followed it all the way to the longest night of the year, what we now call the winter solstice. And they understood from observing nature that when it got to the longest night of the year, it was in that darkness that the sun began to shine longer and longer each day, that even in the deepest dark, the fresh radiance of the sun would once again begin to shine. This is why they actually marked their calendars and the autumn, the deepest dark, the darkest depths, that was the beginning of their year every year because they believed that is the darkness where things begin. Now fast forward to about three centuries beyond Jesus and it was the first time that the early Christians ever came into contact with the Celtic people. They went to the north of the Alps, and when they first engaged the Celtic people, the Celtic people told them about this tradition they had regarding the darkest depths and how they would move into the darkest night of the year and all of the rituals they had to observe it, believing that once again the sun would be reborn. 
And those early Christians heard that and said to them, well, you're nothing but a bunch of pagans, and you're actually all wrong, and we're right because we have the Bible that tells us this story. And if you disagree with us and don't believe in what we're saying, you're going to spend an eternity in hell and eternal conscious torment. We call this the good news. No, that's actually not what the Christians said. The Christians heard their story and said, funny, we also have a story about light being birthed from darkness. And they weren't just talking about the creation poem found in Genesis. They were actually talking about the birth of Jesus. Which raises the question, where on earth would those early Christians have gotten the idea to connect the creation poem with the birth of Jesus? Well, it's possible that they read a gospel from one of Jesus' disciples named John and it started with the words, in the beginning. And the reason that we date Christmas to the time of year that we do here in the Northern Hemisphere is because it was those early Christians that understood that what we observed in nature was the same story that gospel writers were telling that in the deepest dark, that's where the light is reborn. Now, some of us hear stories like this, and it can just feel like, you know, ancient wives' tales and a bunch of primitive people who just don't really seem to get it. Because now, in our modern world, we're able to explain why the days lengthen and why the days shorten, given the axis of the earth and its rotation around the sun. And so we hear stories like this and we think, ah, those are just myths. And if you think they're myths, I actually agree with you 100%. But I define myth in the way that Joseph Campbell defined myth. Joseph Campbell said myths are images that point towards something that is always true and sometimes happened. He said myths are for us variations on one single great story that is always being told. And this outer reality that the Celts observed, this outer reality that the writer of the poem found in Genesis observed, also points toward an inner truth. That if it's true out there, it just might be true in here and with us as well. Several weeks ago, I read a story about a man who was born in Poland about 100 years ago. And when he was born, he was the youngest of three children. He had never met his sister because she died when she was an infant. By the time he was eight years old, he was enrolled in school. And one day, when he was walking home from school, a neighbor came out of his house and rather gruffly and abruptly told him, your mother died while you were at school. It was such a shock to this eight-year-old that he didn't speak of his mother again for more than 10 years. A few years later, his brother, his older brother, went off to college and studied medicine. His brother came back home, which made this young man excited because his brother was his hero. He looked up to his older brother like a lot of younger brothers do. And his brother, who was now a doctor, went and was treating people at the hospital near his home and while he was treating patients there, he contracted scarlet fever from one of his patients and died suddenly. And this young man said that at the age of 12, when his brother died, it was worse than when his mother died because he understood what it meant. 
One of his friends said that he and his father lived in what was once a peaceful house, but now was just a lonely house, that they were lonely together. By the time he graduated high school a few years later, World War II had broken out and the Nazis had invaded and occupied Poland, which gave him very few opportunities for work. So he began working at a factory. Two years into his job, he came home one day and he found his father was still in bed. He went to wake his father up and when he placed his hand on his father's hands, his father's hands were cold and he realized that his father too had died. And as he recounts that moment, he said that he held his father in his arms and he was weeping. And he began crying out, I'm so alone. At the age of 20, everyone I've ever loved is gone. The New York Times bestselling author Peggy Noonan writes about this moment and here's what she says. There was something far deeper Something like an uprooting from everything that his father represented, origins, tradition, family history, and authority. It was like being violently ripped out of the soil in which he, the son, had grown until then. His life could no longer be what it used to be. From that moment on, other questions, other inner torments began to arise. This was his dark night of the soul. And in his loneliness and aloneness, he came to believe more deeply than ever that he was not alone. He chose. He chose to follow his faith and dig deeper into it. He now began a journey to a deeper communion with God, but it didn't come without tears, and it didn't come without what seems to have been a certain existential horror. This young man who went through all of that by the age 20 was born and named Karol Yusev Wojtyla. We now know him better as Pope John Paul II. And Pope John Paul II said it was these experiences early in life that influenced the way he chose to lead the Catholic Church. That he wasn't interested in going and telling people what he believed or what they should believe but he was far more interested in how he should act and how he should behave. Which is why whenever he visited a country he had never been to, the first thing he would do when he got off the plane was kneel and kiss the ground of that country. Which is why when he would travel, he wouldn't go to meet with dignitaries, but he preferred to go and see the imprisoned and the poor and the hungry and the lonely, especially those who were young. Because he knew what it was like to live that, through that. And he would say to those young people, the light of Christ is still within you, and it's waiting. It's interesting how experiences like that early on in life can shape a life in the way it shaped his. For some reason, I feel like a lot of us know this to be true, that we have these dark nights of the soul and somehow something new is born within us when that happens. And I imagine in a room like this, many of us have had those moments. I know I have. Whether it's been the loss of a loved one, whether it's been times for me of extreme doubt in who God is or what the Bible is supposed to be. I recall one when I got fired from a job when my wife was pregnant with our second child. 
And I felt so isolated and so alone. And have you ever noticed when things are really bad for you, it seems like everyone else is doing just great? Like, I just, I didn't even want to talk to people. And I remember one night, shortly after all of that happened, it was winter and I was in Michigan, which means it was bitterly and inexcusably cold, but I still decided to go for a walk. And as I was walking, the snow was crunching beneath my feet with every step, and I was looking down at the ground, and I was walking toward a park near our house that wasn't lit, and it felt like I was walking into this darkness. And as I was walking, I began muttering something that grew louder and louder. Don't you care? Don't you care? Don't you care? And I realized in that moment, it was... Not me muttering, it was actually a prayer. That was more like a psalm of lament, and it was the first time I had prayed in months. It was a dark night of the soul, and I'll be honest, it didn't feel like anything was being born in that moment. It actually felt a lot more like everything was passing away. But I can also tell you that over time, something new was born in me that the light of Christ was still within me waiting. Not only waiting for me to see it, but also waiting for me to see that the darkness too is sacred. It's interesting if you ask people, what has shaped your life most? What has taught you how to love well? What has made you into who you are? What's formed your character? You don't hear people say, oh man, it was when I bought this really nice sports car. People don't say, oh, it was when I got a raise at work or I got my dream job and I made more money than ever. No, you hear things like, it was when I walked into a room and stood up and introduced myself and said, I'm powerless over my addiction. You hear words like surrender, loss of a loved one. Somehow we point toward those dark nights and we say, those are the things that shape us. That phrase, dark night of the soul, was coined by a 16th century mystic named St. John of the Cross. And this is what he says about those dark nights. Though this holy night darkens the spirit, it does so only to light up everything. And I think whether it's Pope John Paul II or St. John of the Cross or those early Christians or the Celts, or the writer of the Gospels, or the one who wrote the creation poem. I believe they're all tapping into the same thing. And it's the same thing Advent wants us to know. That it's in those deep and dark places that the radiance of Christ is reborn again and again. Maybe this is why John compares it to the moment the universe burst into existence. Because it's something that's that powerful, it's something that's that unbelievable. That in the deepest dark, Christ was born. And this is what we celebrate each year during Advent. And it's something that's so massive, the only thing it can be compared to is the birth of the universe because when Christ was born, it was like there was a whole new creation that came into existence right here in the middle of this one. 
The writer Alexander Shia speaks about this, and here's what he says. If the season of Advent teaches us anything, it is about the holiness of the dark that births the light. This is the great truth of Christmas, that the beginning of life is found in the dark and that in those beginnings, God breathes God's very self into every cell of the cosmos, into you and into me. And my hope for all of you on this night as we celebrate the birth of Christ is that you would come to know deep in your bones that the spirit of God still hovers in the darkness. That the vast creative power of God is still at work and it spans the breadth of the universe and it's still at work in you and in you and in you and in you and it is with you and it is within you even in those little cracks inside your broken heart. That this power is alive and it's gone into the darkness that's pregnant with possibilities and we celebrate because Christ was born anew again. And this is why we turn our attention and at last light the Christ candle, the candle that declares Emmanuel. And as we light this candle, may you hear these words of liturgy. Be still in this deepest dark, in this hallowed darkness. Knowing this darkness is the womb from which Christ's radiance is born. O radiant love, born anew this night. May your radiance burn bright within us. May your radiance burn bright in our world so that we might sing with the angels glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Amen.